Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 9. One of my favorite albums of all time is Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. It even has a subtitle. He says, it's the true tall tale of the coming of Christ. It's a Christmas record that, in, in fact, tells the story of Christ, but not in a typical way. Nearly half of the songs address God's unfolding plan of redemption in the Old Testament. The second track on the record touches the account of the ten plagues where we will be today. Listen to what he writes. Well, we all remember Moses on the banks of the river. He said, Pharaoh, you've got to let my people go. You don't want me to have to tell you this ten times over. Denial ain't just a river, you know. Many of us may remember the story of Moses standing before Pharaoh, demanding he let the Israelites go to free them that they might serve the Lord. Most of us are familiar with how Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, operated with this sense of denial of who God is as he hardens his heart against the Lord and continues to exalt himself. Perhaps the mention of the biblical Plagues send images of biblical proportion sending through your thoughts. Water turning into blood, bathtubs being filled with frogs, hail crashing down from the sky. But what I would like us to do as we set our course through the well-traveled land of the ten plagues is not just to remember what happened, but why it happened. Why it matters. So why did the ten plagues happen? Was it because that children's books needed imaginative and colorful pictures to hold their attention? Or could it be something much greater than that? The signs and wonders recorded in Exodus 7.14 all the way to 10.29, which is where we'll be exploring, have a specific purpose For God to make himself known to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, and ultimately to make himself known to the ends of the earth. While we typically refer to God's activity in these chapters as plagues, the scripture prefers to call them signs or wonders. It actually never calls them plagues. They are signs and wonders through which God communicates and demonstrates who He is. He is God and God alone. But we'll we'll call them plagues since that's what we are used to referring to them as. And as we look at the first nine plagues today, I want us to read through the lens of what God might reveal to us about Himself through these signs and wonders of God. The map that I've laid out will show that he is first the Lord of all creation. Second, that he is the Lord of every heart. And finally, that he is the Lord of salvation and judgment. So we'll cover the entirety of the nine plagues over three chapters. But our primary reading this morning will come from chapter 9. Verses 13 through 35. 
The reason that I chose this passage is because of how the details of the seventh plague serve as a pattern throughout the plagues of this section. So for those of you who are able, let me invite you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Though written long ago, speak to us today. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But when the wheat, the emmer, were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses." grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen.
The signs and wonders of God performed in these plagues show us, first, that our God is the Lord of all creation. For nearly a thousand years, scholars have noted that there's an intentional arrangement in how the plagues proceed. The first nine plagues were arranged into three groups of three plagues each. So three groups of three plagues. The first nine, uh, or the first plague in each group begins with a warning that's given to Pharaoh while he stands on the bank of the Nile River. The second plague in each group are, are foretold to Pharaoh back in that snake den of his palace. And the third plague of each section, the final one, comes with no warning at all. Now, along the way, there are some subtle variations between the scenes with this growing anticipation, giving a sense of progression as the signs increase in intensity. They bring greater anguish on the Egyptians, all the while the Lord is demonstrating His power. The book of Exodus begins in the Hebrew with the word and, which tells us that what we're reading is not a new story beginning in Exodus chapter 1, but the continuance of God's great story of how the world began and how we as his people began. So as we read Exodus, we never travel far before we think back to the book of Genesis. So the ten plagues don't happen in a vacuum what happened in the timeline of redemption as the maker and sustainer of all things puts his glory on display in the world. The Lord of all creation. As one hymn writer said, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. So as we walk through the valley of these nine plagues, we want to take note how they each point to the Lord of all creation through a sort of decreation. Instead of upholding the creation like God has always done since he breathed it out into existence from nothing, here we see God send destruction specifically on Pharaoh and Egypt in a sort of decreation. Let's take a quick survey of these plagues and see what this looks like. In the first plague, the Lord turns water into blood. These very waters that the Lord made in the creation account on day two are filled then with life on day five as God creates all things. Those waters are now transformed into undrinkable, for the animals, unlivable pools of blood. Exodus chapter 7, verse 21, explains how the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank. Now, hold on, on that word right there. Remember, uh, Pharaoh says the Israelites stank to him. Now, Moses is showing this divine reversal where now the act of God is creating a stench in the nose of Pharaoh himself. So the Egyptians couldn't drink the water from the Nile. The magicians of Pharaoh attempt to replicate this miracle the way that they succeeded last week we saw with that serpent. And though they are able to find a little remaining water and turn it into blood, they don't solve the problem. Instead, they add to the problem, taking the very little water they could find and also making it unusable as it becomes 
blood. In the second plague, the Lord sends frogs to inhabit all of the land, including Pharaoh's palace. Moses mentions that the Nile was swarming with frogs. Again, that word is important to us because remember, it's that word that Moses used that showed us what was the source of the slavery to begin with. Remember how Moses said the people of God were swarming through the land because of God's blessing and them multiplying. They become so numerous, they swarm the land. That's a little reminder for us to just think of God as he's moving through here. Well, the magicians of Egypt try to stay in the game, but notice again, they don't make the frogs disappear. Instead, they make the problem worse. The result of their sign is just more irritation for uh, all of the Egyptians as frogs are now found in people's beds and ovens and bowls. Kids, you should say, ooh. Okay, that's pretty weak. Kids, you should say, ooh. It's disgusting. All right, so in the third plague, the Lord takes the very dust that he had used to form Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. You know, the Bible doesn't leave us wondering how mankind was created. You were created in the image of God by the hand of God himself. And this traces all the way back to the dust of the earth. God makes Adam in his own image in Genesis 2, 7. Uh, from the dust. Here he takes that same dust and breathes out a multitude of gnats. You can also translate that word biting insects. The gnats in Texas don't bite, but lots of other things do. It wasn't that God was using these gnats to try to balance the ecosystem. These were irritants sent from the hand almighty to bring exasperation on the Egyptians. In the fifth plague, the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, strikes Egypt's livestock with death and disease. The very creatures that God fashioned with his own hand and gave them the breath of life. Genesis 1.24 now takes life from them. On the fourth day, the Lord filled the earth with, with vegetation so that the animals and people he would create on days five and six would have enough produce from the earth to live. Well, in the seventh and eighth plagues, the Lord sends hail and locusts upon the earth, destroying fields of crops and herds of animals alike. Finally, we see in the ninth plague, the one who imagined the sun and gave source to its light strikes an act of judgment that sends creation reeling back into chaotic darkness for three days. They don't even leave their house for three days. It's so dark. The first nine plagues. Why? Why would God do these things? Well, in each of these signs, God is answering Pharaoh's initial question in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, when he said, Who is the Lord? Well, with each of these signs, the hand of God strikes blow after blow. That's the language the Bible uses. These blows against Pharaoh and his people, revealing exactly who he is. The first way God answers that question is showing that he is the Lord of all creation. 
in chapter 9, verse 14, the Lord Himself summarizes what He is doing, what He's saying through these signs, that you may know that there is none like Me in all the earth. Who is like our God? Is what we heard in the call to worship this morning. And the resounding answer is, no one at all. The Lord Almighty in each sign shows that He alone is God and there is no other Not the Nile River, which people worshipped as the giver of life. Not the sun god Ra, who they believed held the sun under his control. Not Horus, who was supposed to rule the skies. And not Pharaoh, who was believed to be the incarnation of the gods. Even Pharaoh, God among them, stands unable, impotent, when compared to the power of the mighty hand of the Lord. So who is the Lord, Pharaoh? He is the God of all creation. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of covenant, the God who was and who is and who is to come, the one who has pledged himself to his people, the God who will even use creation itself like a tool in his hand to demonstrate His glory and to advance His redemptive purposes in the world. That's who the Lord is. So what I'd like to do for our applications this morning is take the points that we're highlighting and point them at our hearts as timely comforts. The reality that our God is the Lord of all creation is a great comfort. I point your attention to our confession of faith, which says we believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit whose name is Yahweh, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. I've been turning that phrase through my thoughts throughout this week, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. You know, those are more than just ink spilled on a page to help fill out a confession of faith. Those words are full of meaning for us. They're meant to give us a strong sense of who God is and for us to live in a God-centered way of living before Him with a God-fueled, God-breathed confidence. What does that look like just very practically? Well, brothers and sisters, people of God, the maker and supreme ruler of the entire galaxy is your God. So fear not, little flock. When the temporary governmental powers flex their might because the ruler of heaven and earth is in control. Fear not when you cannot see the future. The one who ordained today has ordained your tomorrows. Fear not if the Lord who made you, he will sustain you until the moment that he returns or calls you home. There are great comforts in us thinking together about the Lord being the Lord of all creation. Look with God-centered confidence to the Lord of all creation. The signs and wonders of God performed in the plagues also show That God is the Lord of every heart. This is the second truth that I highlight. If we retrace our steps through these chapters and look at how God interacts with Pharaoh, 
What I think we see is the truth of Proverbs 21.1 unfolding in real time. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Remember, denial ain't just a river, you know? Pharaoh has been denying the authority, the sovereignty of God. Let's consider how Pharaoh, whose hard heart said, I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. That was his stake in the ground. And now watch how the Lord in his kindness just pulls at the thread of that until there's no stake left. God demonstrates his power not only over the created things, but over the specific creation of Pharaoh's heart. At the end of the first plague, the Nile turns into blood, and Pharaoh could not seem more disinterested. He literally turns his back and goes inside, his heart remaining hard, chapter 8, verse 22 says. As the plague of frogs hops out of control. You see? Hops out of control. I'm really trying here. Uh, by the time we get to the frogs, we already see his tone start to change. In 8.8, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and begs them to plead with the Lord, take away the frogs from me and my people, and he says, I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. But as soon as that burden is lifted, after Moses prays and the Lord brings relief to his circumstances, chapter 8, verse 15 says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them. By the third plague, the gnats of the dust, Pharaoh's heart grows even colder. And as the power of the magicians runs dry, at the end of that third plague, they confess, this is the finger of God. And now you have the magicians saying, this must be God, but Pharaoh remains silent. As we get to the seventh plague... The words that Pharaoh uses in chapter 9, verse 27, are this. He says, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now, what does that sound like to you? It sounds like a confession of sin, perhaps even a confession of faith, but they are merely hollow words. It's what the New Testament would later call worldly sorrow. Paul outlines the difference between worldly sorrow and godly grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I don't think we should miss this. Go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 9. One of the accusations that Pharaoh makes against God is that he is speaking lying words. But what we see again in Pharaoh is that God never tells a lie. God cannot tell a lie. But Pharaoh, over and over through the ten plagues, lies through his teeth. In every moment of pain, And then, once the burden of his situation or the consequence of his sin is lifted, he changes his mind. Ultimately, Pharaoh and his worldly grief and his hardened heart would result in both physical and spiritual death. As we arrive at the end of chapter 10, we hear the haunting words in verse 27. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. It was in Exodus 4.21 where we were first told that while the people of God would receive the word of God that Moses brought, Pharaoh would not. Before Moses ever returned to Egypt, before he stood toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, before any of the plagues were wrought, God told Moses that in the end, Pharaoh would not let his people go. He even discloses the reason why. God himself will harden the heart of Pharaoh. There are 22 references in Exodus to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Eleven of them tell us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Eleven times we're told that God was at work. What are we to make of this? Who was it that was hardening the heart? The answer is both. This is known as the doctrine of concurrence. That is the hand of God working through his creation in order to achieve every one of his plans and purposes. God working. So we are making real and willful decisions, yet under the real and sovereign will of God. So on one hand, we see God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and on the other hand, we see Pharaoh's decision to harden his own heart against God, and he's rightly punished for his sin. Now, these passages of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh at times have been avoided. Sometimes they are edited. Other times they're denied altogether. But as a church, we believe in the Word of God, even when it challenges our beliefs and our understanding. We hold to a high view of God's sovereignty that is not limited just in creation, and it's not just skin deep. God is sovereign even over the human heart. And so we hold these two realities side by side. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, And in doing so, he was rightly judged for his sin. Now let's think about the truth that that our God is the Lord of every heart and see what comfort that might bring us as his people. Last week, we looked at the reality that while Moses was commanded to go and deliver the words of God, he was not commanded to change the heart of Pharaoh. He was just called to speak. And so the comfort that is ours is as we evangelize, as we speak the gospel words, the truth of who Christ is, the holiness of God, uh, the great need that we have as sinners, the completed work of Christ and how we're called to respond by repentance and faith, we can trust that the Lord's sovereignty is not just seen in creation, it's not just skin deep, but it goes all the way down to the heart. Jesus comforts his disciples with this very thought in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me before the foundations of the earth were established, they will come to me in time. And all who come have this great, unshakable confidence that we cannot lose what we did not earn. God's salvation that was given to us as a free gift is ours both in this life and in the life to come. And that all that he has called, they will come. All that God will save, 
will save. Specifically, what comfort is yours from that? I just wonder what friend or family member that you are praying for and speaking gospel words to. Perhaps you're even growing discouraged. You haven't seen the transformation of heart that you thought you might see by now. What comfort is ours here? Keep speaking. Keep planting gospel seeds. Keep watering those seeds by prayer. And that the Lord of salvation might, in fact, save and turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Yes, Pharaoh stands as an example to us of someone who died with their heart hardened toward God. But he's not the only example. I thought of Paul this week. Paul, whose heart was as hard and dead in sin as Pharaoh's, who was living his life against Christ and against the church, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved Paul, even when he was dead in his trespasses, made him alive together with Christ. By his grace, he saved Paul. And were we any better? No, our hearts were as cold and hard and dead as Pharaoh's in our own sin. We had made ourselves the Lord of our lives. And God, in his kindness, knocked us off of those thrones and took his rightful place as the Lord of our lives. He is the God who redeems. So our role is not to try to figure out who the Lord will save and who he will not, but to believe in the Lord of every heart and to live out of this comfort that is ours, that he is the Lord, even of the hardest heart. The final thing I'd point your attention to from these signs and wonders performed by God in the plagues is that he is the Lord of salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. The plague narrative never blushes or apologizes for the way that God acts in his dealings with Pharaoh or the Egyptians, and neither must we. They receive the judgment of God because they are not his people. He's the God who judges all according to his own righteousness. The scripture doesn't also hold up the Israelites as having earned one ounce of God's favor by doing anything special to become his chosen, beloved people. He chose them because he chose them. He loved them because he loved them. In the middle of the fourth plague, we begin to hear an interesting development that is a preview of what we will eventually see at the crossing of the Red Sea. While the Lord's judgment falls on his enemies, his people are saved by the provision of his grace. His judgment falls on his enemies, and his people are saved by the provision of his grace. God tells Moses during the fourth plague, as things are just getting unbearable, that there's going to be a division between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Before the flies swarm in, the Lord removes his people, still within the land of Egypt, but to a specific piece of Egypt called Goshen. And it's there that God's children and their children's children and their livestock won't be affected by these continual blows toward Egypt and toward Pharaoh. So listen to this in chapter 8, verse 23. You'll you'll read there, 
It says, I will put a division between my people and your people. Another way to say that, if you have an ESV translation, there's a little footnote there that says, another way to render that is, I will set redemption between my people and your people. Now that is an interesting phrase. God will set redemption between his people. And we see the evidence of this redemption in plagues 5 through 10. As the judgment of God rains down on Egypt while his people are sheltered from each act. So as the livestock in, the, in Egypt all grow sick and die, the livestock of the Israelites all flourish. Chapter 9, verse 7. As boils come down on the magicians and Egyptians, there's no mention of the Israelites being affected whatsoever. Chapter 9, verse 11. As driving hail pounds down upon the crops in the land, strikes down every plant of the field, and breaks the trees of the pasture, Moses wants us to see in chapter 9, verse 26, back to these words, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then we see in the ninth plague, the land of Egypt is covered with a thick blanket of darkness they can see nothing they don't even leave their homes for three days but chapter 10 verse 23 says but the people of Israel had light where they lived he is the Lord of salvation and judgment as we see this division, as we see the redemption of God extended to his people, incredible comforts run to our hearts. So as the people of God, we have been shielded from the punishment of our sin only by the blood of Christ. We too deserve to sit under the lightning and thunder of God's judgment. Because of our sin, we deserved what was fair. So maybe a moment ago, some of you are thinking about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh thought, that's not fair. I knew a guy who once said, well, the fair's in October. <laughs> but that's not fair. But what we know by reading Scripture is that what is fair for each of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is a due and just punishment from God because of our sin. That's what's fair, to experience the judgment of God. Yet because of the work of Christ, for any and all of us who are in Christ, we have been set aside from the wrath of God. A division has been made between what we deserved and what we've been given. He has set redemption between us and his wrath. Because on the cross, perhaps the most miraculous sign and wonder, the cross and the resurrection of Christ... God's wrath was satisfied once and for all. We did not earn one ounce of his favor. We did nothing special to become his chosen and beloved people. He chose us because he chose us. He loves you because he loves you. What a comfort that is to us. The second verse of Andrew Peterson's song summarizes these plagues. 
but looking at them in reverse. Listen in again. He says, and we all remember Pharaoh. He just wouldn't do it. So the plagues, they came upon Egypt one by one. His heart was hard, and the other nine just wouldn't move it. So the last was the worst, the death of the firstborn son. Pharaoh just wouldn't submit to the authority of God, so the plagues came upon Egypt one by one. His heart was hard, and no sign from heaven, no wonder of God would humble it. And so next week, we will be studying the tenth and final plague, where the Lord's judgment passes over the Egyptians and the Israelites alike. Only where His judgment will fall on the Egyptians The judgment of God will fall on a spotless lamb without blemish whose blood was shed as a covering for their lives. The signs and wonders recorded in chapters 7 through 10 have a specific purpose for God to make himself known to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, to you and me as we sit here at the ends of the earth. These signs and wonders of God reveal there is only one God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of every heart. And He is the Lord of both salvation and judgment. So as the people of God, we are taught these truths, we are shaped by these truths, and we are comforted by the signs and wonders of God. And to any of you who this morning would freely admit that you have hardened your heart toward the Lord. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never repented of sin and turned to Him. Come to the end of yourself. Not living as Pharaoh with pride toward God, but living as Paul, a prideful man who humbled himself in the sight of God and was saved. Jesus stands ready to receive you. We encourage you, repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Look to the signs and wonders of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is a light to us. I thank you that you've not left us guessing who you are, but you have revealed yourself. Thank you for the privilege to worship you and looking at your word. I pray that you would hide it in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. You would humble our hearts through it. We might live as free people in the freedom afforded us in Christ. And to all who have not known your great salvation, Lord, let today be the day of that salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.